What a beautiful entry point to this homily that the Lord has come. I love that line, his love will hold me, his love will cherish me, and love will cradle me. And that's why we sung at the very beginning of this service, joy to the Lord, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Because right now, across all of this world, People are rejoicing at what God has done, that he would come in the flesh. You know, there's all kinds of Christmas traditions around this world. I don't know if you know of some of them or not, but they're pretty intriguing. We have our own traditions in America, usually holiday movies and fruitcakes and those kind of things. But if you're in the Czech Republic and you're a single woman, you take a shoe and you throw it behind you out of the door. And if it lands and the toe points towards you, then you'll get married that year. It's better than Tinder. I mean, you might as well try it. What's it possibly going to hurt? You might as well try it. In Ukraine, they put cobwebs in their trees. In Guatemala, they sweep their house clean for a week because they believe that somehow uh, evil resides in dirty places. And then they bring all the things that they've been hoarding and all the roughage from their house and they bring it to the city square and they put an effigy of the devil on the top and they all burn it and they all celebrate that their houses have been cleaned for Christ. I like that one. Uh, In Japan, it is tradition for whatever reason uh, that on Christmas Day, you have to make reservations months in advance. Everybody eats Kentucky Fried Chicken, (laughs) which uh, that's great too. And then in other places like Austria, they have Krumpus. Krumpus is this devil figure. Actually, if you do the research, there's so many traditions around the world that actually involve the presence of evil. Uh, And there's this Krumpus figure, and he's this devil figure who's trying to find out. We talk about kids who are naughty and nice, and he's trying to find out who the naughty kids are. And so the men will dress up with these devil costumes and go through the neighborhoods, and the kids have to hide in their house to stay away from Krumpus. That's awesome. (laughs) And my favorite is in Peru, outside Cusco. I've spent a fair bit of time in Cusco. Outside Cusco, there's a tribe that got tired of saying, we, we talk about peace on earth, goodwill towards men, but nothing seems to change. And so they decided on December 25th, on Christmas Day, after everybody has their meals, everybody comes to the city square, and if you have a grievance with somebody, you can point at them, and you have to fist fight for a minute. And there's pictures, you can go Google pictures tonight if you don't have anything else to do Christmas Eve. There's pictures of like 50-year-old women just battling it out. And then, it's great, I've been involved with neighborhood drama. I think it's a great thing to do. And then, after all of that, they have a feast. And they drink together and they celebrate together because our grievances are finally over. We're going to go into the new year with a fresh slate. There's all kinds of Christmas traditions The three wise men are not normally celebrated in America. We don't make much of them because they come usually after Christmas, uh, during Epiphany. That's when they show up. As a matter of fact, in Germany, uh, if you put your shoes out on Epiphany Sunday, uh, which is when the wise men traditionally show up, then the parents will give you another round of gifts. So you get more gifts on that Sunday, which is another great thing to do. Here we talk about these wise men, and we talk about them through Matthew 2, where we see them in this text. Here's God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men 
from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What do we know about these wise men? Well, not a lot, actually. Uh, traditionally, we would believe that one is from Arabia, one is from Persia, and one is from Babylon. We don't know that actually to be true, but that's what the tradition holds. And it would make sense if we understand, as some of us have been reading through the Bible all year long, maybe, just maybe, God exiled people to Babylon like he did with Daniel. And maybe, just maybe, God exiled Esther to Persia so that they could show a witness to God. And then centuries later, one generation leads another generation, leads another generation who are all waiting on the Messiah out there in the far east. And then they realize something cosmic has happened. And it's the one from Babylon. It's the ones from Persia that Daniel led to the Lord or that Esther led to the Lord. It's those from Arabia that somebody else led to the Lord who realizes that there's been this cognitive significant difference And here we see them. They come. We don't know that there's three. We know they have three gifts. But let's just be honest. You're going to somebody's home and you don't have a present. You kind of say, hey, can I write my name on yours? Like, can that just count for me? Like, that's kind of a normal thing to do. Uh, We would imagine if they are the we three kings of Orient, that uh, they would come with chefs and they would come with servants and they would come with cooks. But they had three gifts. We're not even going to talk about the gifts tonight. We'll talk about those in part two of this sermon, which is tomorrow morning. Uh, They come for some 800 miles from what we can tell, which is a long way away, and they come with all kinds of questions. The predominant one is this. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, these magi are people that understood how the heavens worked. And they lived with their eyes up. They lived with their eyes focused on what the heavens were doing. And when Jesus came into this world, he changed something. He he changed everything, actually. And they recognized it. And so they started the long journey from the Orient, 800 miles, all the way over to Jerusalem. And meanwhile, you have Herod. And Herod's like most of us. He's not living with his eyes up. He's not longing for anything. He's not expecting anything. Herod's got his ear to the ground. Herod's living with his face in front of the phone. Herod's worried about his approval rating or his likes. He's living with his head and his face down, not with anything lifted up, not with any longing. And so he's got his ear to the ground in Jerusalem. And one of his little spies somewhere reported back to him, hey, you should probably know about these wise men, these wise guys, as we like to call them. They're dressed really funny. They've traveled 800 miles. They said that there's a king here. There's a new king that's been born. But Herod, you're the king. 
So we got to figure out what's happening because if there's another king that's been born, that's going to be a threat to you. And so Herod gathers together all of the scribes and the chief priests, and he says, hey, do you know anything about this Messiah, this Christ who is supposedly going to be born here? And their response is astounding. Their response is, oh, yes. Here's the text, verse 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophets. We know exactly about this guy. Interestingly, the scribes, with their noses stuck in the books, with their heads not lifted up or not longing, Herod, with his ear to the ground, only concerned about his own self-interest, much like Americans, they missed Jesus, and they were only six miles away, and the Magi found him, and they were 800 miles away. So that brings us to the first point, which is this. Who found Jesus? The ones who are willing to go on the journey, even though they didn't have all the answers. See, that, that's what Christianity is. It's not having all the answers. It's the ones that are longing for a Messiah. The ones that are longing for some kind of cosmic difference. The ones that are longing for something to have happened in this world that would actually make sense of it. That there would be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And willing to step a foot on the journey, not knowing where they were going to end up. Not even knowing where he was. Still filled with all of their questions, but saying, it's worth the journey. And that might be some of you tonight. I want to just tell you pastorally, it is quite okay to start to step into the Christian faith without having all of your questions answered. Matter of fact, I've been pastor for almost or full-time ministry for 26 years now, and I don't have all my questions answered. It's not about having all your questions answered as much as it is the longing for this king who didn't find Christ. The ones who are six miles away from Bethlehem, who are looking only with their faces down at their own self-interests, at their own comfort, who had their noses buried in a book and actually knew the answers, but weren't willing to travel the six miles to even try to meet the king of kings. Which brings us to the second point, which is this, why find Jesus? Why would, why would we go looking for him anyway? What's the point? Here's the first point. God wants a family with you. I don't know if you know that or not. Sometimes you think God wants to forgive your sins and then he's going to make you do a lot of things, like be a missionary. No, God's asking you to be in his family. There's a beautiful picture. I think we'll put it up at this point if we have it on the screen. This is a picture of a Sister Gracie. Uh, Remington. She is a nun from Iowa, and she did this in a color drawing to raise money for the convent a number of years ago, and somehow it just took off, and it's a beautiful picture. There's Eve on the left with the serpent, Satan, starting to keep her grounded, you know, crawling up her leg. He's already done his work. She's clutching the apple to her breast, much like we still hold on to our sin, much like we still hold on to our idolatry. Her face is down. You can see her cheeks are red. She's feeling all the shame of what it's like to bring a curse on the earth. And yet her hand is outstretched to the womb of Mary, who's bringing in the hope of the world who would finally reverse the curse for all of us. And all the shame of Mary and all the joy of Eve, we see there in that beautiful picture, Mary with her eyes somewhat up. 
Eve with her focus down. God wants to put you in a family. But it's not going to be easy because family's not easy. My bet is at least 50% of you got in a fight on the way here tonight. And, and that just affirmed it. And if not a fight tonight, you'll get in a fight sometime tomorrow, or you'll get in a fight sometime this week, or you'll have to go to that uncle's house, or, and, and you'll just, you know, there's going to be fights. Family's not easy. We don't come to Christianity because it's easy. C.S. Lewis says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. If you want the religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity, because here's what's going to happen in Christianity. This little baby boy is going to be slaughtered. He's going to go to the cross. And he's going to go to the cross to tell you that you're that loved. And that's going to be so unnerving, you know, won't know what to do with it. So the temptation is, I'll just run from it. I'll just go back to entertainment. I won't think of it. I'm just going to put my head back down. I don't want to think about these big picture issues. I don't want to think about the things I can't solve. But you know what you need to combat your loneliness? You need a family. You need the family of God. You need the family where Jesus says, I'm your older brother. And God, you're my father. And there's the nurturing and there's a comforting Holy Spirit which guides and directs you. You need desperately the family of God. That's the first thing. Why else would you look for Jesus? Because you need to worship. A, a, a baby changes everything, don't they? Changes your sleep schedule. Changes your priority, changes what you care about, changes your pocketbook. I mean, it just changes absolutely everything. You're now like the little like cry, you're up in the middle of the night. You reorient your life around a child. And what worship asks you to do is to reorient your life around him. Now, if you're a Christian, this points a little bit more for you. Because some of you are out of alignment and you can feel it. And it feels clunky. Your life is just pulling all the way to the right because you're out of alignment. It's clunky. What God's asking you to do is to reorient your life around him. What does he want? Where's his glory to be found? How does he want you to love your family or your spouse? How does he want you to spend your money? How does he want you to think about your future? That's what God is asking us to do. He's not just cute. He's the king. But why would you do that? Why would you spend your life to reorient it around worshiping Christ? Here's why. Because it's true. Now we can talk about, there's several different ways to talk about this. One is we can talk about how this is historically true. These were historical documents. I'm not going to spend any time on that. I've done that in years past. I'll bring it back up in a future year. But it's also true because it's scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous. If you were making up a story about a king who's come to the world, you, sure, you certainly wouldn't let him be born by a scared little virgin girl who's poor as dirt and has no social standing. And you certainly wouldn't write it into the story that he's born in a manger. You, you would never do any of those things. You would write it as this king who's come in this palace who's going to take over politically, who's going to take over economically. He was going to make everything right by his power. And yet Jesus came riding in on a donkey. And he came humbly to completely flip the script. As John Wesley said, the most repugnant thing 
to reasonable and capable people is grace. And that's why some of you maybe will never seek Christ because you think, I can handle this on my own. It's for the weak ones. It's for the ones that need a little help. I know how to navigate my way through this life. I don't need Jesus at all. Grace is repugnant to you because grace is scandalous. It means the person beside you who reeks of alcohol can get in the kingdom just like you can. It means the person beside you has multiple affairs can get in the kingdom just like you can. It means the person that you don't respect at all in business but somehow found the love of Jesus late in life, couldn't make up for all their past sins, but on their deathbed they said, I want Christ. He gets in too. And to reasonable people, grace is repugnant. But it's just the kind of scandal you need. Because so many people will say to me, Andy, I don't, what could God do with me? How could God ever take care of this mess? How could God ever take care of all the things I've done? I mean, it's going to take a miracle. Yes, yes, and amen. And it's the miracle of the incarnation, which is exactly what we need. It's exactly what we need. It's the scandal of the incarnation, which is exactly what we need to believe that there's hope in this world, that the script can be rewritten. Lastly, friends, in light of these things, that God wants to have a family with us, that he wants to worship us, lift up your heads. So many people are living in shame. So many people are believing uh, like Eve, that they've done so much and they're still gripping onto the apple and they're still captured by the serpent, that God will never change them. But the story of the gospel is Mary looking at Eve and saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to reverse this curse through this child as far as the curse is possibly found. Or as the Magi must have seen in the stars, something's happened in this world. Something's changed. Apparently all things are going to be made new. And we need that good news. Because most of us live still with our eyes and our gaze down. Not thinking about the eternal, not thinking about the infinite. Just thinking about our own comforts like Herod and the scribes and the chief priests. Earlier this morning, I was on a major news website and I scrolled, I got to the bottom of the page and it said, uh, we've created a good news generator. Click on this if you want good news. I was like, that's interesting. It's also interesting that we decided to bury this at the bottom of the page. But nonetheless, uh, I clicked on it and all of these words came up. Despair, famine, earthquake, recession. All these words started flashing at you. And then another kind of screen came up and it said, click this if you want good news. I'm still here. Clicked on the first one. I'm still in the game. Clicked on that one. And then at another screen up, we, we've created this generator to create good news. Click here if you want good news. I'm like, okay, you get one more click. And then I'm out, clicked on it, and a story popped up about this guy that rode like 2,000 miles on his bike to get lavender croissants for this person on the street that liked it. That's great. I mean, I'm for that. It said, click here if you want more good news. I clicked it again. You know what happened? The page froze. Out of good news, apparently. That's it. We had one good news story. Click, click, click. Nothing's happening. The whole page froze. And I thought, that's so how we live. 
man, we want some good news so badly, we'll create a specific website on a major news network to try to somehow salve the wounds that we have living in this fallen world. But here's the good news. Christ has come. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. And here's the better news. Christ is coming again. And so here's what we do. We realize he, he wants a family with us. You don't get to pick your families. You're just thrown into them. So we're thrown in with everybody who is at Mitchell Road. There's this family of God trying to figure it out together. You learn to worship, to reorient your lives around what he wants. And then you lift up your heads. You quit living in the shame that Jesus hasn't done what he said he would do. You start looking at the stars and what God might do. You start longing for what God might do in your life. And here's why. Because as it says in 1 Timothy 1, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So friends, I want you to step into 2023 with the idea and with the hope that God might do something in your life that you couldn't even possibly imagine. But if he doesn't, you're going to have a family to walk with you. And you're going to have someone to orient worship around that should change your life. And you can lift up your heads. Just like the wise men, imagine that trip back. We'll talk more about gold, frankincense, and myrrh tomorrow morning. But imagine that trip back. 800 miles back, they gave the gifts. They roll back into Persia. They roll back into Arabia. They roll back into Babylon. Their wives say, hey, how'd it go? And they said, everything's changed. Everything. The king has come. And we'll see what happens from here. And we've gotten to see it, at least part of it. And I can't wait to see the rest with you. In light of those things, we want to share this light And 